Hello and welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I am the dog. With me, as always, is Mark Schmore. He is the duck. We are back after a one-week hiatus and are ready to talk about some NBA action, tennis, what's happening in the world of sports. But of course, we always get into our dog and duck news. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Warren. What a great... Uh sports weekend didn't matter what sport you're into there was something for everyone from hockey to tennis to soccer to baseball to basketball to mma i mean it was just there was uh more more sports than one could consume for sure absolutely well we've got plenty to talk about so let's go ahead and dive in to as we always do a little bit of our dog and duck news we are of course the dog and duck show and uh that's our that's our heartbeat that's our passion so a few uh, tidbits on the husky side of things um huskies landed four-star running back out of texas amika megwa uh, who is a six foot one 220 pound thumper of a running back out of keller texas um this you know continues in a, a trend of both big running backs that seem to be what uh, running backs coach Keith Bonifa and offensive coordinator uh, John Donovan seem to be looking for. Uh, this is the, the third or fourth guy in a row that they pulled that is over six feet tall and over 200 coming out of high school. Um, but also this is the third Texas running back that the Huskies have recruited just in the last two or three years. So certainly a trend there. And then uh, more recently, they also got out of uh, Desert Ridge High School in Arizona, three-star outside linebacker Lance Holtzclaw, six foot four, 200 pound pass rusher. Um, definitely has to put some weight on, but uh, there are a lot of high hopes and interesting comparisons for Lance Holtzclaw. I think the one that comes to my mind is uh, a running back that played for the Huskies a few years ago named Travis Feeney, who did spend a little time in the NFL, but more of a, a, a long, lanky speedster that uh, used his athleticism to cover a lot of ground. Um, so those are a couple of nice pickups for the dogs. They did, uh, of course, lose out on five-star uh, defensive tackle JT Tui Malau, who ended up committing as most expected to Ohio State University. Still, that's a, a, a stinging loss for the dogs to have uh, what some recruiting analysts consider to be the, the number one uh, high school recruit in the country coming in, out of the 2021 class, to have him right in our backyard and have him choose to go outside of the Pac-12 footprint is definitely a, a loss, not only for the dogs, but really for all of the Pac-12 and continues a, a, an unfortunate trend um, among Pac-12 recruiting of uh, some of our best players leaving the Pac-12 footprint to go play for teams like Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, and others. Uh, in other dog news, Jimmy Lake uh, has been added to the Dodd Trophy watch list. This is the award for the coach whose program represents three pillars of success, scholarship, leadership, and integrity. Um, no, no surprise there, in, in my opinion, uh, that Jimmy Lake is being considered for this award, building off of the reputation that uh, he established underneath Chris Peterson, but uh, a little surprising that he's the only Pac-12 coach on that list right now. So um, good news for Jimmy Lake. We'll see what that turns into as the season plays out, but certainly that does, I, I think, help a little bit with his credibility as he enters into some of those living rooms over the next few months to recruit players. So yeah, that's a little bit on the dog side. Uh, Mark, uh, anything you want to share about your beloved ducks? 
Well, I did. I did want to start just by pointing out that Mario Cristobal was on that Dodd Trophy watch list last year, and I know David Shaw has been on it before as well. So that it may be uh, somewhat of a cycle of of kind of trying to recognize some different guys. I wouldn't necessarily say that that Jimmy Lake is the only coach trying to kind of lead with integrity and and scholarship and everything. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think. Uh... All, you know, most coaches at, at the very least um, want to, you know, acknowledge that those are things that they're they're passionate about. So probably safe to assume nobody from the Arizona State uh, coaching staff is going to be on that watch list in the near future. <laughs> right. Yes. Of course, you're referring to the controversy that came out about a week and a half ago uh, with Arizona State breaking a number of recruiting rules during the. Um, you know, during the, 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 the COVID restriction season. And uh, certainly there's a lot of, there is a lot of um, questions that, that whether or not, uh, you know, um, Coach uh, um, Herm Edwards is going to be around or what kind of penalties are going to come down on him. But yeah, Mark, circling back to the, the Dodd conversation, just as a point of reference, um, Kyle Whittingham did win the Dodd Trophy in 2019. David Shaw won it in 2017. And of course, uh, Chris Peterson won it as the coach at Boise State in 2010. So certainly there's not a, a lack of love for the West Coast in regards to that trophy. But going into this year, um, they've selected Jimmy Lake to be maybe that flag bearer for the Pac-12 and the West Coast. Well, I hope he continues the tradition and brings home another trophy for them. I mean, that's that's great with Whittingham and Shaw have kind of set a standard there. Uh, yeah, you asked me about kind of Oregon news. I, you know, covering the recruiting stuff, uh, Oregon recently landed a five-star offensive lineman uh, in Kelvin Banks from Texas. This was a big day. Uh, it was on the 4th of July, which was the same day that JT Tui Maloa announced his uh, his commitment, and Oregon fans were kind of hoping for a, a twofer. They were holding out some hope that they could land uh, Tui Maloa, but I, I was not particularly holding out that hope. I thought he was going to Ohio State, but but they did pick up uh, Kelvin Banks, five star offensive lineman from the state of Texas. He was offered scholarships by LSU, Texas A and M, and the University of Texas. And this kind of continues a recent trend for Oregon of really uh, bringing in some big time recruits along the offensive line, which of course is Mario Cristobal's uh, wheelhouse. He himself was a national champion winning offensive lineman at the University of Miami. He was an offensive line coach on some very successful Alabama teams. He is now recruited or had a hand in recruiting four different Outland Trophy winners. When he was at Alabama, he was heavily involved in the recruiting of Alex Leatherwood, Quinnen Williams, and Cam Robinson all won the Outland Trophy during their time at Alabama. And then of course at Oregon with Panay Sewell. And if I'm looking at this through an Oregon lens, my hope is, is that this is the reputation that kind of carries him. That if you're a big time offensive lineman, you would wanna go even far from home in the case of Kelvin Banks to play for Mario Cristobal. I think if you look back to kind of Oregon's uh, inability during the the Chip Kelly era and the Mark Helfrich era to kind of win the big one, a lot of times that was demonstrated uh, on the front lines is that when they played uh, an Auburn or a LSU or an Ohio State in, in kind of the biggest games of, of those era, of that era, they couldn't hack it uh, up front. They usually had the skill position players to to hang with those teams, but there was there was oftentimes a real deficit on the offensive line. And so, uh, in terms of you know Oregon's aspirations, which is ultimately to be taken seriously as a national championship contender, the biggest missing link is to have you know a, a front line on offense and defense that are really capable of, of competing at that level. This is only one recruit. We don't know if he will pan out the way these other guys have. Um, and obviously you need more than one stellar offensive lineman to create a, a stellar offensive line in general, but, but certainly, you know, some positive news uh, for Oregon fans that are keeping an eye on that sort of thing. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. You know, we both, as we both mentioned, both for the dogs and the ducks, um, you know, taking some pretty significant talent out of the state of Texas is um, something that probably never would have happened uh, during the, the height of the Mac Brown era. And, um, you know, both, both, you know, the, the, the running back that I mentioned and the five-star offensive lineman that you mentioned uh, obviously had offers from the University of Texas, Texas A&M, uh, you know, TCU. So you do wonder, um, you know, with Steve Sarkeesian headed, you know, at, at Texas now um, with that rebuild at work, how long will those Texas uh, – you know, pipelines remain open, or was this kind of a, a you know, a golden opportunity to to steal an egg from the from the goose and and um, you know, a long time before Oregon or UW can can you know get that kind of an opportunity again? I, yeah, it's interesting. I think that we're seeing uh, definitely an era where recruiting has become much more of a national game for more teams. It, it used to be that there were a few programs that would kind of recruit nationally, like back in the Tom Osborne era for Nebraska, they, because they had to, they were pulling kids out of Nebraska or Florida or whatever, because they had kind of developed this national brand. But for the most part, uh, teams were recruiting within kind of their time zone uh, or, or within their, even with their state or their geographical region. And a lot of that was tied to players wanting to be closer to home, but also uh, most games were not televised to the large degree that they are now. So if you were, you know, a kid on the West coast, you were much more likely to stay on the West coast because uh, games were regionally televised. And if your parents were wanting to watch your games, on ABC, if they couldn't actually be there in person, they were they were going to have to be in that West Coast bubble in order to get those West Coast games, you know, in the twelve thirty time slot or whatever it was. But now we're at such a, a an era where virtually every major college football game is being broadcast on one channel or another, and outside of the Pac twelve network, which seems almost impossible to get, uh, most of these channels are are accessible. To people if, if that's something that they really um, need to do in order to watch their kid and so I, I think this is going to be a trend that we're going to see and obviously the advent of social media and being able to contact kids in the way coaches can now uh, I think you're going to see more of this kind of um, national approach to recruiting by a broader spectrum of schools and and it's it's going to be two-sided you're going to have schools like Oregon and Washington pulling more kids out of Texas but you're going to have Steve Sarkeesian able to pull more kids out of out of the West Coast because he has his own ties there, and uh, you know there's probably going to be winners and losers on both sides of that equation. Yeah, I know it's a really it brings up a great you know question and conversation is is that as it relates to let's say our two teams Oregon and UW um, is the proliferation of national recruiting as opposed to regional and state recruiting does that work more in the favor or work more against those teams my initial guess mark is that if you go back and you look at uh, the huskies dominant teams of the late 80s and early 90s um, those teams were made up of primarily a strong concentration of in-state washington players and players from California, primarily from the, that, that hotbed of the Southern California region. And, um, you know, when the Huskies have done really well, they've kept their best in-state players and they've been able to recruit well out of California. But now with teams like Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, uh, Florida State, you know, pulling some of the best talent out of places like California, you know, do teams need to begin to really say, okay, we, we can't just guard our borders. We've got to go in, on attack. We've got to start pulling guys out of Florida and Georgia and Alabama 
to be able to to even the the odds a little bit. So you know, I would say, uh, unfortunately for me as a Husky fan, it seems to me that you know, with Oregon's more recent success on a national level, and um, with their national Nike you know branding, they do seem probably like they're more poised to be able to go nationwide as opposed to the Huskies who I think may have a better uh, regional footprint, but not, not on the same level nationally. Yeah, I think if you look back to the, the donning of the Chip Kelly or the first team that Oregon had go to the national championship game, their best player, Heisman finalist LaMichael James, was a running back out of Texas. Uh, their quarterback, Darren Thomas, was out of Texas. Their best receiver, Josh Huff, was out of Texas. Uh, that was a team that was, um, and those weren't all necessarily blue chip prospects. I mean, in some cases, it was maybe finding the guy that the Texas or the Texas A&Ms overlooked and then offering them a scholarship and, and capitalizing on that. But uh Oregon definitely has a branded approach to their their program building. There are not nearly enough blue chip uh, athletes in the state of Oregon or even in the Northwest, for that matter, to to build a competitive team. And so you have to you have to create some sort of draw that goes beyond your your region. And, and Oregon has had certainly a lot of success in the branding side with with those Chip Kelly teams. It it does seem like uh, Mario Cristobal is now turning that into some some different um, recruiting opportunities that that never really materialized in the Chip Kelly era. So uh, I do think that's you know for better or worse that's kind of what you have to do in this era. Uh, but I don't think that's that's the only way to do it. I think if if you were a, a place like Washington and you just said we're going to dominate the West Coast, there's enough talent on the West Coast. If you take Northern California and Southern California, there's enough talent to to put together, you know, a really competitive team. So I don't think it's necessarily like everybody has to do this, but there are going to be opportunities for some teams that, that choose to embrace that. Yeah. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier with JT Tui Malau, um, also same story with Amika Igbuka, five-star wide receiver uh, out of Stavacom, you know, Washington. We got to win those in-state battles for the, the five-star. So we had three five stars in the state of Washington this last class. Two of them went to Ohio State. One uh, came to UW, but a lot of people have kind of dismissed that as not really counting since it's a legacy recruit in five-star quarterback Sam Heward. Um, however you cut it, uh, you know, getting a five-star is uh, a big win, especially for a team like UW. And um uh, you know, so we'll take it, but we got to get more of those, especially when they're right in our backyard. I do think this is one thing, Warren, where the expansion of the playoff in the coming years, I think will only help the schools on the West Coast keep those guys closer to home. Because right now, if you're a player that really has aspirations of playing on a championship team, you're basically going to look at who are the teams that are in the playoff and in the championship game every year. And both Oregon and Washington have been in a, a playoff fairly recently, but for the most part, those playoff spots have been nominated by three or four different programs. And those programs are kind of vacuuming up all of these recruits where if there is a different PAC 12 team in the playoff every single year, and if occasionally that's Washington, if occasionally that's Oregon, that's going to be more of a compelling draw than just knowing that, that, you know, they're playing in a bowl game, which right now does not seem to have the currency with, with recruits that, it once had. I think uh, having playoff berths as something that you're selling to recruits is going to be a, a game changer. That's a good word. Well, since we're still on the subject of, of uh, college football, before we get into some of the NBA conversation, Mark, I stumbled on an article written by Andy Staples of The Athletic. That was interesting little thought experiment. And really the, the question was posed, if you were to take uh, the, the best players to come out of maybe the four most recent superpowers, uh, obviously Alabama, Clemson, um, and then, you know, Ohio State, and then maybe a little less obviously Georgia, and put together an NFL roster 
um, with just players from those four teams, would that would that uh, superpower super team be able to beat a roster of the field, everybody else from every other school? And uh, you know, there are some familiar names that, of course, um, you know, we could we could make we could make note of uh, Trevor Lawrence. Najee Harris, Travis Etienne from, from Clemson, Devonta Smith, Calvin Ridley, um, tight end Irv Smith on defense from, from Ohio State, Chase Young, um, Nick Boza, um, you know, Jeffrey Okuda from Ohio State, Minka Fitzpatrick. You know, there's some, some big names there, some, some well-known names. And, uh, and then you look at the field, so every other team. And uh, a little bit of a debate about who that quarterback might be, whether it's uh, Baker Mayfield, Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow. Uh, but then the rest of the starting offense that he selected was uh, included some guys like Saquon Barkley, Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin, Jamar Chase and Je Justin Jefferson, both wide receivers out of LSU, uh, Panay Sewell as uh, offensive tackle, Kyle Pitts, the uh, uber talented tight end from Florida on defense. Um, uh, Vita Vea from the University of Washington, Devin White from LSU, Derwin James from 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 uh, Florida State. So, so Mark, I, I guess maybe that the first question I have is, as you think about that, if you were to look at those two rosters um, and just purely from from talent, from from production. Um, who comes into that that matchup as the favorite, in your opinion? Is it is it the the super players from the super teams of Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson, or is it the best players from the rest of the field? It, it's it's a fascinating fascinating question, and I'm I'm going to kind of take it in a little different direction than you're asking it, just just to kind of provide us some context. I went back and looked just at random at uh, the 2017 NFL draft. Uh, and I wanted to see like the Pro Bowl players from that draft, what were the schools they came from? And there are players from, from the schools you mentioned. Deshaun Watson was the quarterback that year uh, out of Clemson, of course. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore, defensive back from Ohio State. Uh, Alabama had a couple defensive backs, Marlon Humphrey and Eddie Jackson turned into Pro Bowl players. So good players out of kind of those dominant schools. But most of the best players from that draft came from other places. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, you might have heard of him, was the quarterback at Texas Tech. Uh, Buda Baker, you're very familiar with, one of the best defensive players in the league, was at the University of Washington. T.J. Watt, uh, outside linebacker, was at Wisconsin. Alvin Kamara, great running back at Tennessee. Dalvin Cook was a running back at Florida State. Miles Garrett was a defensive end at Texas A&M. Jamal Adams was a safety at LSU, blah, 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 blah. The, the point is, is if you're taking the field, like you're, you're just getting into um, some ridiculous talent levels that even the Alabamas and the Ohio States uh, and the Clemsons can't match. And you know, Andy Staples is kind of building this, you know, best college players of these eras. And, um, and that, I think that's kind of a compelling argument, but I think if you were to take all of those guys on Andy Staples list and fast forward to where they've all had a chance to be in the NFL for five years, I think you will see that the field has put together a much stronger group than three schools were able to just because um, there's just so many more players that you're able to to utilize, you know, if, if we're talking like just, just in a narrow lens of like, was Trevor Lawrence a better quarterback than Marcus Mariota or, or Joe Burrow uh, on a college level, just purely college level, you know, I think um, that's probably a toss up, you know, I mean, I mean, whoever you take, I would take the other one and be, and be pretty confident. Uh, but if, if we're really like trying to assess like the talent level of those three or four schools compared to everybody else, I, I think everybody else uh, would would trump them in the end. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I do want to make a, a slight correction to what I said earlier. Um, according to Andy Staples, his pick for the starting quarterback would be a toss-up between Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen, 
And then the quarterbacks that I mentioned uh, earlier were kind of the, the toss up for the third teamer, which were uh, Mayfield, Herbert, Murray, and uh, Burrow. So, uh, so a little correction there, but um, to your point, Mark, I think, yeah, obviously, you know, if you really start to, to dig into this, the answer has to be, you got to take the field. They've got more talent. There's more depth there. There's some superstars that, um, you know, would overcome. But to me, what's so fascinating is the fact that we could even be having this conversation. Right, right. You know, that, that there are four teams that have uh, dominated so thoroughly in recruiting and production on the field that um, the rest of the field, the rest of the teams, the rest of every college um, you know, football program in the nation would have a bit of a time yeah. putting together a team to beat th those guys. And the thing that really stood out to me, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Mark, is you know this whole issue of recruiting, and particularly for the Pac-12, keeping the best players on the West Coast out of the um, you know, 22 or so players that were mentioned um, as being the best of the field, uh, only one in terms of starters uh, from the University of Washington and the University of Oregon are the only two players to come out of the Pac-12 right. uh, to make this list. So offensive tackle uh, Panay Sewell is, uh, you know, his pick for – uh, a starter on the offensive line, and then um, you know defensive tackle Vita Vea is his pick for starter on the defensive line. But what does that say about you know where our uh, you know where our conference is at right now? Is this just a poor assessment by Staples? Are there some glaring omissions, um, or uh, are we just that far behind right now? Can you remind me what the era, uh, how many years back he's looking? Is this just in the past, like two years? It looks like. So it it looks like to me. I believe he said here from the past four drafts. Okay. Here are the likely starters on offense and defense uh, for each team. The last four drafts. So I think um, you know you mentioned Buddha Baker, who to me would be a slam dunk, but I I believe. He would have been in the uh, 2016, I believe. Yeah, I think he's just too far back, and and the same would be true of, same would be true of Christian McCaffrey, who was in that same draft, who was you know a stud at Stanford, and right. So I yeah I don't know if it's maybe a bit of a small sample size. I mean Staples has uh, Darius Leonard, who was a linebacker at South Carolina State. Um, he has uh, Jesse Bates, who is a defensive back at Wake Forest. I don't think that, you know, the takeaway here is that Wake Forest is putting out better players than USC. I think it was just that Wake Forest happened to have a defensive back who was, un you know, unnaturally good for, for that level. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think uh, it would be interesting to kind of look at a draft, an overall draft comparison and and see overall is, is where is the Pac-12 producing draft picks compared to the other four major conferences. My guess is they would be fifth, uh, but my guess is they wouldn't be fifth by, you know, a landslide. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how much to read into just the fact that there's only two. It would be more, more of a concern if there were no Pac-12 players on this list, but at least at least they got a couple of them on there. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, you mentioned USC, and I remember as a little boy, when recruiting was not the, the national pastime that it is now, uh, I remember my dad and I talking about um, USC, and my dad hated USC, and he just always said, they always get the best players. They always get whoever they want um, they get, and then we've got to figure out how to beat them, even though they're getting all of the best players. Yeah. And we did that for a while. And, um, and we've had seasons of, of uh, you know, 
dominance over USC, but that's been a pretty much a constant for the last 40 or 50 years of college football is that USC gets who USC wants. And it's only been really in the last maybe eight, nine years that that's not really been the case. And uh, USC has lost out on some players. And of course, they still are loaded. They still have more talent than, you know, 99% of the, the, the teams out there. But, um, you know, that it does seem like more than anything, this list is an indictment on USC. I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, I also just, I looked up a list while, while we were thinking about this of the uh, 2021 NFL draft by conference. And the Pac-12 is actually not fifth, it's fourth. It's ahead of the Big 12, uh, but it's significantly behind the ACC and the SEC and the Big 10. So the SEC led everybody with 65 draft picks during this last draft. The Big 10 and the ACC were both in the low 40s. And then the Pac-12 has 28, which is a pretty big gap from the low 40s. And then the Big 12 is even worse with 22. And uh, and I think that probably fits most people's perception of those two conferences uh, is that is that they're maybe just not on the same level of physicality as certainly as the SEC and the Big Ten and as as Clemson is kind of the lead team out of the ACC. So uh, I do think what you said is it is an indictment of, of USC as much as anything. I think when USC is at its peak, it's turning out draft picks like any of these other teams. So uh it'll be interesting to see if they can recapture that, you know, Clay Helton is doing pretty well in the current recruiting cycle from what I understand. Uh, But it'll it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's keep moving along. Let's talk a little bit of NBA. Um, So we're recording this on Thursday and uh, we may not get this out for a couple of days, but as of right now, the the series is tied 2-2 uh, between the Bucks and the Suns. I think it's been an interesting series. <clears throat> it's been a series that, to me, um, has been one in which um, you know, no one player has really taken control of this series. There's there's not a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan that you just know, okay, this guy is the guy for the entire series. Um, Giannis has had a couple of monster games, 40-point games, uh, played really well last night, 26-point game, had an incredible block that uh, contributed to uh, the Bucs win. But Chris Middleton became the the leading scorer uh, for the Bucks last night, uh, putting up another 40-point game, which uh, I don't know if I saw that coming before the playoffs began, that he would be such a, a, a significant contributor on a few, uh, for several games this, this playoffs. So Mark, you know, maybe just your general impressions about the series. And then, you know, when you look at this team, it seems like to me it's about the two stars for the Suns, Chris Paul and Devin Booker, and then the two stars for the Bucks, Giannis and and Middleton. And you know, who's gonna who's gonna kind of you know, take the lead in the in these final three final three games? Well, I think first to, I I would say that. Uh... I think Giannis has maybe been a little um, better than you just gave him credit for. I mean, he had a back-to-back, a 42.12 rebound game followed by a 41.13 rebound game. And I don't have the exact number in front of me, but the guys who have scored back-to-back 40-point games in the NBA Finals is a very short list. And I want to say it's a list that includes Jordan, Shaq, Jerry West and maybe LeBron and that's about it like I mean it's it is a very very yeah I don't want to diminish what Giannis has done I believe I saw something too with uh, maybe Elgin Baylor yeah list like that as well Um, so no I'm not diminishing that at all yeah like when you think okay so like let's talk about like for a second the Jordan 
the Jordan Bulls. Yeah. Um, obviously, Pippen had some great games yeah. with Jordan. But typically, you know, if there was a 40-point game, you knew right. it was coming from Jordan. You know? Exactly. And I think that was kind of my point. It was that not so much to diminish Giannis, but to recognize that here you have a guy like Middleton who becomes – the explosive score and and that's happened multiple times in this this playoffs for the bucks same you know same with paul it's like uh devin i think is is the primary scorer for this team and yet paul has had a couple of big explosions at key times to really um you know carry the suns yeah but in a way it kind of diffuses a little bit of that um you know, dominance by Booker or dominance by Giannis. That was kind of the point that I yeah. was. Totally. Yeah. And I think um, on that one, so if, to start with the Middleton point, it's a really good one. Uh, comparing him to Pippen. So Middleton has had four games just in this playoffs where he's had 35 points or more, four times. Scotty Pippen in his entire playoff career did that once. Uh, in his entire playoff career. And that was when he was playing with uh, the Houston Rockets, actually. It was after his time with Michael Jordan. So to, the, you nailed the point is that if if the Chicago Bulls in the Jordan era were going to get 40 points from somebody, it was gonna be from Michael Jordan. It was not gonna be from, from Scottie Pippen. And the number of guys who have kind of been the, uh, the beta to the alpha, if you will, who have been capable of scoring 40 points in a finals game is a really short list. It's a, it's a list that I think includes Kobe Bryant from the early 2000s when he was teamed up with Shaq. It's and that was like alpha one and alpha two. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a list that I think includes Kyrie Irving when he was teamed up with LeBron. He had a couple 40-point games in that NBA final. There's not a lot of other guys... Um, you know, I think the Durant-Westbrook pairing could reach that ceiling, uh, but but uh, they only went to the finals one time, and, and that was kind of before Westbrook had really become the, the scorer that he would later become. So, again, you know, to your point, to have a guy like Chris Middleton who is capable of doing that when he's feeling it like that really does uh, take the pressure off of, of Giannis and... I mean, it's it kind of is the story of of the series right now. If Middleton doesn't have that game, even with Phoenix not playing particularly well outside of Devin Booker, Phoenix maybe steals that game and goes back to Phoenix really with a stranglehold on the series. But Middleton plays lights out. He matches Booker, who also had a 40-point game of his own. And now we're going back with this critical game five in Phoenix. And if you're looking at it from the Phoenix perspective, the, the story right now is what kind of game are they going to get from Chris Paul? Because yeah. it's not putting it too harshly to say it was one of the worst playoff games of his career that he just had in right. this last game, five turnovers, including a key turnover in the final you know minute or two uh, with the game on the line where he, he just lost control of the ball. It, it looks like he might be dealing with a variety of lingering injuries. We never really know about those things until until they come back to us at, at after the season is concluded. But you pointed out that during this playoff run, he has played, he's had some of the best games of his career, quite frankly. Uh, that has, that was not the case today. It wasn't the case in, in game three. And so if, if Phoenix is going to find their way to that championship and this elusive championship for Chris Paul, he has to basically become the old Chris Paul. He has to deliver some of the best games of his career in order for them to find their way to the championship. I don't think Chris Middleton is going to, you know, do this every game, uh, but he certainly is capable of doing that in a game six at home, which I think is now the concern of your Phoenix is like, you've got to win game five because you don't want Milwaukee playing the clinch when it, when it goes home for game six, you really want to be in control of the series at that point. So it's a, it's a huge game five. And I think there's a lot of pressure on Phoenix now, whereas Milwaukee is kind of playing with some, some new life and some new energy, I would think. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at this from purely kind of a, a, a non-biased sports fan basis, uh, it seems like clearly the, the 
most likely person to win the the NBA Finals MVP is Giannis. I mean, he's got he's got the resume, he's got the track record. So, and and that would of course presume that they could steal a game at Phoenix, whether in Game Five or Game Seven. Um, but you know, what are the odds that that one of those other three guys, Middleton, Paul, Booker, win, you know, win the MVP. What would they need to do in order for that to happen? And, um, you know, out of those other three, uh, if you take Giannis off the table, out of those other three, who, who, would, who would you say is most likely to be the NBA MVP if it's not Giannis? Well, I would say if it's not Giannis, then that means that uh, Phoenix probably won. And so if Phoenix won, then I would think um, because Chris Paul has struggled so mightily, I think it's setting up for Devin Booker. Um, you know, he's coming off a 40-point game. He's averaging over 27 a game in the finals. If if he has another game like that in, in game five, and then they're somehow able to, to win the series in six or seven, I think... Uh, you know, Booker would be the leading candidate for a guy like Chris Paul to do it. Um, I mean, he would have to have just two kind of all-time games and maybe Booker would have to struggle and, and the numbers would have to kind of even out a little bit to where if you look at the box score for the series, you're thinking um, you kind of forget about these last two games that, that Chris Paul has had. So that's not out of the realm of, of possibility. You know, I think, is there some world where like it could be DeAndre Ayton where he has like a 2020 game in game five or something and we're talking about DeAndre Ayton has now become the most important player for Phoenix. You know, I mean, that's maybe a little more of a long shot, but kind of a fun scenario. But uh, I think if I'm just looking at this objectively, Giannis is clearly the best player in the series. 32 points and 14 rebounds per game in the NBA finals, it's really rarefied air. Uh, so I think as through four games, that's kind of the defining memory. Phoenix may end up winning the series, but I think we're going to look back at this series as kind of the breakout for Giannis where he kind of ascended to another level of, of superstar status. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's coming, he's coming out of an injury and he seems to be, you know, only gaining steam. Yes, he only he only scored 26 points this past game, but that probably is in great part to the fact that Middleton was on fire, and yes. he deferred to Middleton, let him continue to to score, and took care of other aspects of the game. But you got to think, like you said, on the road, maybe maybe Middleton's not quite as uh, sharp uh, in his in his shooting and that's where the athletic Giannis who can kind of create a lot of points manufacture a lot of points through just his pure athleticism and and physical mismatch uh, it, it seems to me that yeah the the odds uh, the odds on favorite is clearly Giannis to to have another at least one more 40 point type uh, outburst and potentially, like I said, steal game five or maybe even more, uh, you know, more dramatically steal game seven from, uh, from the sun. So, yeah, really an interesting storyline to keep watch on. And I don't know about you, Mark. I don't know. Like, I, I haven't kept up with, um, you know, how the national media and how just national viewers are, you know, excited about this game but uh, you know i'm i'm happy that these two teams are in the nba finals i think it's a great opportunity to say that there are some great stars out there besides just you know the the golden state warriors uh, super teams and you know the lebron james super teams that yeah there's some wonderful young players out there let's give them their due Let's give them their chance in the spotlight. And um, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to see maybe two smaller market, uh, not as Hollywood type teams really getting a chance to, to show themselves. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I do think the ratings are, are pretty far down from, you know, the last pre-pandemic finals. And I think not having a LeBron or a Curry involved certainly affects that. I think also just the month of doing it in, in July, more people are on vacation and just, you know, less attached to their homes to be able to watch some of these games. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. I love having a couple new teams. I love having a couple two teams that have historically been underdogs. I love kind of the scenario of you've got the aging superstar on kind of his one last chance against the newer superstar who's really emerging and, and showing that he's one of the best players in the world. So I, I think it's been really compelling theater. I think game five is going to be incredibly intense. I think both teams are, are really going to be laying everything on the line for that. And, um, yeah, and I think I think it's been a, a fun finals, uh, even if if the ratings don't necessarily reflect that. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we Mark, you and I, we really kind of forged our friendship in many ways around the conversation of the all-time greatest NBA basketball teams. And yeah, I think after after this series is over we may need to revisit and you know rethink that list i think giannis is making a very compelling argument for his place among the all-time greatest and of course the chris paul conversation and i'll be honest whenever i kind of ranked my all-time point guards i i didn't give chris paul the due that maybe a lot of people would say he deserves yeah maybe this maybe this finals is the thing that really kind of pushes him into a, a little bit higher of an echelon in terms of the legacy that he has as a point guard, but he's got three games really to make that argument. And, yeah. um, you know, whatever the injuries he may, may be facing, he's found a way to put out, out some productive games in the last week or two. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the injuries can't be used for or against him in that regard. He's yeah. got to produce with three games in uh, in this season left for him, uh, two home games. This is his time to make his mark and to, to carve out his final legacy as one of the greatest point guards of all time. Well, and I, I couldn't agree more that in – in the case of both of those players, Giannis and Chris Paul, their legacies will be shaped a lot by what happens in the next couple of games. You know, that, that both of them, I mean, they're, they're, whatever the ceiling is of where that legacy is, is in a pretty good shape right now, but they could both take a dramatic leap forward by, by finishing out this series. You know, if you're talking about Chris Paul, in our lifetime, like point guards who have, have, uh, you know, been the best player. And I would say Chris Paul is at least the co-best player with Devin Booker, but point guards who have been the best player on a title team, you're talking about Magic, Isaiah, and Curry, really. Like it's, I mean, it's a pretty short list of, of guys that he would be, you know, entering into that conversation with. And, um, and Giannis, of course, you know, would just be establishing himself a whole new level if he were to win a title. I think the other guy that I'm interested in is, is Devin Booker. If Devin Booker has a couple more great games and is able to clinch a championship for Phoenix, especially if he's kind of the one that, that carries Chris Paul to his, his championship in, in some respects, it'll be interesting to see kind of how we start to think about his career because the last guard that I can think of who kind of just emerged this way in a playoff run. I would I would have to go back to like Dwayne Wade in 2006. He was playing with an aging Shaq, was kind of his version of that aging superstar in a different stage of his career. And going into that playoffs, I don't think most people had Devin Booker pegged or Dwayne Wade pegged as like one of the best players in the league. And then he just was astonishing during that during that playoff run. And that really like made his career from that point on, yeah. um, regardless of whatever, you know, playoff struggles he had afterwards, or then he's teaming up with LeBron and he's kind of the second fiddle to LeBron. But that, that single playoff run really shaped the way we remember Dwayne Wade. Well, if Devin Booker averages 28 points a game in a finals and has a finals MVP, we're going to forever kind of attach that 
to yeah. his resume. So, uh, and then even the Chris Middleton equation, like if he has a couple more 30 point games and, and finishes this out, like as, you know, um, in kind of the Scottie Pippen plus role, like Scottie Pippen, but with more scoring, um, that changes how we think of his career. So it's really fun to think about all of these different legacies that could be shaped and formed by what happens in the next two games. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I don't know where Middleton's at in his current contract, but you got to think he's made himself a lot of money in this NBA playoffs. And, um, you know, it's probably unfair comparing him to, to Pippen because Pippen, what made Pippen the ultimate Robin to, to Jordan's Batman was that he did everything yep. so well. I mean, yep. he was one of the, the, the greatest defenders, you know, rebounders, playmakers, assists, you know, hustle, uh, and and then he could score when needed, when called upon. But and and I don't think that Middleton is is in that realm. But yeah, as a as a scoring threat for this Milwaukee Bucks team, he does provide an an incredible number two um, to to help offset any shortcomings that Giannis might have, or really just to be the guy if he's hot. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, going back to those Chicago Bulls days, there was never a time where you thought, oh, well, maybe it won't be Michael that gets hot tonight. Maybe it'll be Pippen and, and Jordan will kind of let him do his thing. That that never crossed anyone's mind. Um, so it, it is a different time, a different team. But, yeah, great feedback, great thoughts on that. Uh, any other thoughts as we wrap things up uh, for today's show? Well, I want to throw one question your way if, if we have time, Warren, and that yeah. is, uh, you know, we had a Wimbledon championship where Novak Djokovic won his 20th major, which now ties him all time with Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. If he wins the U.S. Open, he would win the Grand Slam in a calendar year, which I don't think has been done since Rod Laver in 1969, I think, if I remember right. I'd have to you can fact check me on that later, but uh, I mean, he is, we've, we've kind of seen him knocking on the door for a while now. I think uh, it seems like popular opinion maybe still resides with Federer as being kind of the darling of the, you know, the, um, the one that tennis fans kind of gravitate to with their heart, mm -hmm. but is Djokovic done enough now to, to maybe be in a position where we're going to move him past Federer and, and pronounce him as the greatest of all time. He's, he's six years younger than Roger, which means there could be, you know, several more majors in his future. If he stays healthy, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah. You know, whether you like it or not, uh, Djokovic has put himself on the same plane as, uh, you know, Federer and uh, Nadal and he will eclipse them and be the greatest of all time and perhaps never uh, have anyone come close to eclipsing what he's accomplished. When you think about that trio, uh, their dominance as a, as a trio has really extended for right around 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the three guys of Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic have won around approximately 60 of approximately 80 Grand Slam championships over the last 20 years. I mean, that's yeah. just impossible to fathom yeah. that, that those three guys have been able to dominate um, in spite of one another, in complement to one another. And I think one of the things that... Um, you know, works in, in Roger's favor is the number one, he was the first. Um, he, he, he was the guy that, that began to become known as the greatest of all time uh, after, you know, surpassing Sampras and, you know, and, and taking that mantle. And the thing that, that Federer brings is he brings this beauty and grace um, in class to the, you know, to the man, to the, 
you know, the, the position of greatest of all time. Um, and he did it on what I believe, you know, what I would consider to be tennis's greatest stage. He won the bulk of his majors at Wimbledon. Right. And, you know, Wimbledon, you know, as uh, Keith Jackson used to say about the Rose Bowl, you know, Wimbledon is the granddaddy of them all when it comes to Grand Slams. Um, Nadal, he, whether he's the greatest of all time or not, uh, that could be debated. But without question, Nadal is the greatest clay court player of all time. Right. And he racked up uh, the majority of his, uh, of his Grand Slam championships at the French Open at Roland Garros on the red clay. And, uh, and so in many ways, um, you know, you look at, you look at Nadal and you say, okay, yes, I see he's got the same number of grand slams, but really it was his clay court dominance that put him in the conversation. What, what Djokovic has done thus far is he's, he's brought himself to an even playing field. He's won at the French Open, he's won at Wimbledon. Most of his championships, interestingly, have been uh, with the Australian Open, which right. is probably the least heralded of the right. four Grand Slams. Um, and, and thus, I think it's kind of suppressed a lot of the acknowledgement that he deserves. But I think that what we're gonna see, Mark, over the next three to five years is Unless something, you know, uh, earth-shaking happens with Djokovic, he's going to be the guy that wins two or three of the four Grand Slams every year for the next three to five years. And that's going to probably leave him in the 30 range when it's all said and done for Grand Slams, which is, again, it's, it's unfathomable. But he's getting better. He's getting better. Nadal, Federer, those guys are starting to slow down. They're starting to decline, but Djokovic is getting better. And uh, I don't see anybody, um, you know, being able to surpass him in the next window of three to five years. So that's interesting. So you, you're, uh, you think when all is said and done, it's not just that he's going to stand alone as the record holder, but that it's going to be, it's going to be a bigger gap per, potentially between him and say Federer than it is between like Federer and Pete Sampras, that it's just going to be like that he yeah. could just take this thing and, um, and really extend it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, we talked about this on a previous show, but it's just the world of sports is totally different with, the way that guys take care of their bodies, they've got professional teams uh, overseeing every single aspect of their life, their health, their, their development, their coaching. And so they can extend their careers, um, you know, in some cases, 10 to 15 years longer than guys in previous generations could have, could have extended them. You know, as I mentioned a while back, uh, uh, you know, John McEnroe won his last Grand Slam at 25 years old. Right. He retired at 32. Right. Um, you know, and the the equipment that he played with, all those things, everything has just changed so much. Uh, you know, even Andre Agassi, um, you know, he was eating cheeseburgers until he was like 27 years old and then finally started paying attention to his body. These guys, they've been paying attention to their bodies since they were 14 years old. Um, and it, you know, the, the payoff has been tremendous. So if we were to compare him to the, uh, if just the records to those on the women's side, there are three women still ahead of him. Steffi Groff, 22 majors, Serena Williams, 23 and Margaret court, 24 majors. So you're going to go on record and say, she beats, he beats Margaret Court's record within the next two years, three years. How long does it take him to track down 25 majors? If he's at, he's at 20 now with the U S open still yeah. to come in this year. 
yeah, you know, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult feat to to win the the Grand Slam, the the annual, you know, all four Grand Slams in one year. Um, you know, I wouldn't bet against him, but it's certainly not a sure thing that he can do it. It's just extremely difficult. Um, but granted, he's got one more Grand Slam this year, and then he's got eight more over the next two years. I think that there's a strong possibility that. Um, you know, within three years, he'll, he'll exceed uh, 24, that he'll, he'll reach 25. So maybe not, if he averages winning two per year uh, for the next two years, then that would put him ahead of Margaret Court by year three. Wow. Well, it'll be interesting to, uh, to follow uh, over the next few years. I'm sure the dog and duck show will still be in operation when when he finally breaks that. So it'll be interesting, you know, we'll have a segment about that and uh, be able to play this, this footage of you, you know, going on record from a couple of years before. So, so that'll be yeah, we'll be We'll be on local cable and, you know, in syndication and all those things. So, all right. Well, Hey, thank you everybody for watching the and listening to the dog and duck show. Uh, it's been a great uh, episode today. Like I said, we are recording this on Thursday. We'll, we'll get it out. Uh, either Friday or, or Saturday. But um, for uh, my co-host and I, uh, well, I guess I'll just say for myself, uh, go dogs and uh, Mark, you close it. Yeah, for myself, I'll say go ducks. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>